Good morning, everybody. This morning's reading comes from John, and it's John 20, 15 to 19, and we're reading from the New International Version. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. You guys are in for a real treat this morning. Um, See, so you've got a bonus Bible reading. Um, now, there's two options. I can either try and come up with a sermon based on John 20 to 15 to 19, which Carol read amazingly. Thank you, Carol. Um, or, and I think I've got one, but I think maybe we'll, uh, we'll have a look at a, a, a new story as well. Um, and it's a, it's a short follow-on from the story uh, that we just read, but it's from um, John... Uh, 21, 15 to 19. Now, I might actually, um, you'll have to excuse me while I open my Bible app. How, how, how scary a sentence is that? But we're looking at a story. Uh, doesn't work without Wi-Fi. I'm going to borrow Joel's paper Bible. Let's go old school. <laughs> Kicking it. Kicking it. Oh, there you go. And, and, oh, look, oh, we're going to hug it out. Hug it out. That's good. See, reconciliation in the church. It's just, it's a lot in front of us. I've got, no, I've got nothing else to add. It's, you're done. Uh, but let's have a, a quick look, too. It's another story of where Jesus uh, is appearing to the disciples post resurrection from John 21 15 to 19. And here we read, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And here Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Uh, yesterday I went to uh, a 50th anniversary of uh, Bel Air Baptist Church 
I had a dinner on and I dragged my family along and my uh, three kids out on a, a, sun, a Saturday night. It was always fun. Uh, but it, it was amazing to kind of go and see and um, people were like, oh, I was there for six years as a youth pastor. And like, oh, it's so great to see you. You did a great job. I'm like, you clearly don't remember uh, very well at all. The passing of time has been very kind to my ministry is all I can say. <laughs> but uh, the longer it's been, the better I was, I'm discovering. So I'm looking forward to the 100th anniversary when I was amazing. Um, but the amazing thing is I lasted six years um, because in the first year, um, I decided to, to do a bit of an experiment. See, I was fresh out of Bible college, so I knew everything. Um, and I missed those days. I really missed those days. Um, but I thought it was time. You see, youth ministry had kind of been, in, in Australia, had been sputtering along for 40, 50 years. But now I'd arrived, so we were going to really see things uh, kick along. Now, one of the big hassles you have in youth ministry, or we were having in youth ministry, is trying to build that connection between the, the kids you are discipling and discipleship and those kids that would come along to the Friday night programs because they were kind of fun and energetic and, um, and a, bit, a bit silly. So I kind of was coming up with how do we kind of bridge this gap, which for 40 years has been insurmountable, and now I finally figured out how to do it. So I had this idea. We had a, um, a church. Our church was up on the hill in Newcastle. It was built into a um, quite a, a steep kind of uh, hill. And so upstairs we kind of had our church hall, and downstairs uh, was just all kind of the footings and the foundations and you know that kind of a thing. The perfect place for a youth pastor's office, right? <laughs> you know, like no natural light, no ventilation. Let's brick in. Let's brick in the walls. Uh, it floods any time someone spills a glass of water. This is the perfect place to put our new youth pastor. And so they did. And so they set me up in this office down there. I had a glass sliding door so I could occasionally see. Um, and I was, I was in there and I set it up as my office during the week. And, and one Friday night I thought, right, I, I've cracked the code. I've figured out what's been missing. And this is the time for me to start writing the book on youth ministry. <laughs> So I thought what we're going to do is we're going to set up a zones night. So we're going to have just kind of we had we had a few we had a fair few leaders. So it was kind of um, it was possible to do, and we set up sort of like a, a smorgasbord of youth ministry. So upstairs in the in, in one of the halls we had um, like games all set up. So like kind of had a couple of leaders running these active dodgeball kind of style classic youth ministry games. In another room we'd set up um, some Nintendo sixty fours because that was what was around then. Um, on screens and so kind of you know the, the gamer kids were, were kind of engaged um, we'd set up uh, a cooking zone because it was master, it was the first series of MasterChef I think and people were kids were starting to get interested in cooking bizarrely and horrendously if you ever had to eat it <laughs> but we also set up uh, so we had all these zones set up and I thought and this is where the master stroke comes in this is where my book deal offers start flooding in because well, I'm going to set up a spiritual zone in my office it's downstairs and it has to be a spiritual zone. So the kids, once they tire of the worldly games upstairs, will finally come looking for the, the real stuff of youth ministry. So I thought this zone needed to feel very spiritual. And it's because it's just my office at the moment. And they're not, you know, nothing conducive to worship at all in that space. So I thought I needed to set it up. So I sort of think of all the spiritual things you need. So I started, uh, I got some Bible verses written in by some of the Youth leaders were artistic, kind of on, on big uh, A3 sheets of cardboard and kind of put those around the place. And I thought, oh, well, what else do we need? Oh, well, I'll oh, get some music kind of playing in the background, some spiritual music. So th- and you, know, you know what spiritual music is, right? A lot of pan pipes, that kind of thing. Um, so it was kind of in a, on a CD player. You might remember those in the corner. 
and it was playing, and I thought, oh, black material. A, a, a spiritual space needs lots and lots of black material. Now, I was, I'll take a, another tangent. I was speaking at Swansea Baptist um, last week, um, and Matt Brown says to say hello, for those of you who know him. Um, but Swansea Baptists, their whole um, back wall is black material, so this point really hit home. I'm like, you know, this is the kind of spiritual I was aiming for. Um, but I thought there's something, there's something missing from this space. Like, it's spiritual, but it's, it's just spiritual-ish. I need something to kind of send it over the edge so when kids walk in, they're just kind of, you know, struck and instantly start giving their lives to the Lord and I kick off my youth ministry book deal and start touring. So I thought what's really missing is candles, obviously. How did you all see the problem straight away? <laughs> it's taken me years of reflection to see where it went wrong. See, I went to Kmart and I went to buy a few tea light candles, but it's cheaper to buy a lot of tea light candles than, like, you can go, literally, Kmart, you could get, like, six tea light candles that were scented and lovely and safe and all these kind of things for, like, $3, or for $3.50, you could buy a 1,000 <laughs> mass-produced, unscented candles. And I would say I'm resourceful, my wife would say I'm cheap, so I bought a 1,000 candles. And I went back and I started setting them up all around the space, and I thought, um this is it, like it's kind of, this spiritual zone is, is kind of pretty much here, it just needs um, some kids to it and it'll be great. So I thought it's going to be, uh, it's going to be so overwhelmingly spiritual, like kind of the, the burning bush, kids are going to want to take their shoes off. <laughs> you all have picked it up straight away, this is, this is worrying. Has this happened? Yeah. Anyway, so I had a sign up, please remove your shoes, I had the verse for it and all that kind of thing. And the, no- and the night started... And the kids are upstairs cooking and um, playing uh, games and, and video games and all these things. They're having a great time. And I thought, this is the problem with the youth of today. They're not spiritual enough. I need to lead the way and set the example. I told my leaders about it. They stared at me blankly because they weren't spiritual enough either. And I said, this is, this is what it's going to be like. I'm going to go. I'm going to lead the way like Moses into the promised land down into the spiritual zone. So I'm down there. I've taken off my shoes, I'm in the corner reading a hardcover Bible, the pan pipes are playing, the candles are flickering, there's black material, so I'm in this zone, right? Like I've, this is, this is like a little taste of heaven. And so I, I'm there and um, no one's joining me, so I'm just praying for the lost ones and just really in the presence of God, having a great time. And um, finally the glass door kind of slides open and I hear this, <gasps> and I thought it laughed. Someone has been struck by the sheer spiritual radiance of this room. And they are just, I'll open my eyes, I'll go lead them to the Lord, and then the revival begins. I'll probably start my book tour in Sydney, then maybe Melbourne, you know, show all those people um, uh, how to kind of do this stuff. And so I thought, this is it. I open my eyes and I see that one of my youth leaders is there kind of just overcome with awe at how spiritual this space is. And she's pointing, and I thought, well, maybe, I don't know. And what she's pointing to is the very obvious thing you guys all picked up from the beginning. The bad correlation between candles and black material. I have set the church on fire. Not in the metaphorical, come, O Lord Jesus, come sense. In the, it's actually kind of taking ground and expanding along what is basically a big nylon wick. Uh, along the room. And I don't mean like, ooh, the corners are singeing. I mean like physical, visible, like two or three foot flames. 
And so I look at her and she looks at me. She's laughing. Um, and I'm thinking, I'm rewriting my resume in my head. So I look around and I'm like, what do I do? Like, it's the, I'm literally starting a fire underneath all these children playing, kids playing above. So I look and I'm like, I've got no shoes on. I can't stomp out the fire, but I'm holding a hardcover Bible. So I take the briefest of moments to apologize to the Lord. And I... I manically extinguish the fire. Now, this is obviously all well and good, but um, it's going to be noticeable, right? Like, I have not just singed the... the, Like, it's caught on, and there's kind of, like... Baptists love uh, cheap carpet. Not you guys. This carpet's amazing. (laughs) Like, this space... this This is awesome. Don't get me wrong. But um, the stuff we were rocking was not fireproof at all. In fact, it was just, it like shrinkled up like kind of glad wrap. And I'm like, I'm not going to get away with this. And so I kind of looked at it and uh, the youth leaders looked at me and she, you know, wiped away the tears of laughter from her eyes. And um, we were talking about, we were debriefing afterwards. Everyone survived. Um, and she said to me those, those words, I'm going to hear, what are you going to tell Paul? He's my senior pastor, right? I'm pretty new in the role. Paul's a good guy, but I nearly set the church on fire in, within like a, my first year. And I went, oh. I'd been so relieved thinking I hadn't killed anyone. I'd forgotten that I'd probably killed my career before it had really um, kicked off. So I, I sort of all Friday, you know, I'd been looking on um, Christian jobs and just seeing what else I could do, wondering about going back to landscaping, thinking about some of those kind of things. I'd kind of been nervous and I... I saw Paul on Sunday at church, as you do, and he's like, oh, how was Friday? I'm like, it was interesting. It was eventful. Why don't we talk about it tomorrow? Buying myself another few hours to update my resume, right? So, um, so anyway, Monday, Sunday, Monday morning rolls around, usual pastor kind of debrief, and Paul goes to me, oh, anything you want to tell me about Friday night? And I'm like, uh, let me show you. So we kind of walk down the stairs. It feels like, like the walk of shame, like the longest walk ever, right? Kind of walking downstairs to the thing, and we kind of get to the glass door, and I slide the glass door open, and I say to Paul, um, just one thing, and I kind of pull the curtain back. And at the moment, my head is kind of flooding in with all what is going to go down. So the best of intentions, right? This was not me going, oh, wouldn't it be funny to set the church on fire? This is me with the best of intentions uh, trying to create the stuff that I'm trying to do. Doing the right thing with the right intentions, but ultimately making a pretty big mess of it. So I'm sitting there and my heart's pounding. And I imagine that's what we find with Peter here too. You see, Peter's stoked that Jesus has been resurrected, right? All of his disciples are. This is their Lord, their loved one. Their friend, their saviour. This is the, the one, the Messiah they've built their life around and given up so much to follow. He's died and now he's resurrected. So it's, it's great news. It's exciting. But I wonder if Peter felt a little bit like me and a little bit like we all feel sometimes. You see, Peter was the blustery one. He was the one who was going to rewrite the book on what it was to be a disciple, wasn't he? Lord, even if everyone else forsakes you, if everyone else falls away, not me. Lord, I'll follow you to the end. Lord, I'll never deny you. You're the Messiah. He's told on on you, the rock of that faith and that declaration, I'll build my church. When we follow up 
to this part of the story. It hasn't played out like that, has it? Peter, for all his intentions, all his will, all his bluster, all his, all his hype, all his commitment, has stuffed it. We follow the story on and Jesus is kind of dragged before this kangaroo court and the disciples all scatter. In fact, these who said they'd follow him anywhere were so desperate to get away, one kind of flees and leaves his clothes behind. And Peter, the one who said he'd never leave, has kind of been the boldest to kind of follow at a distance. But when the court case unfolds and he's kind of warming himself around the fire, the, the people go, wait a minute, your, your accent sounds familiar. You must be a, a Galilean. You must know the, the guy on, on trial up there. And Peter's like, no, no, no. no. And the conversation kind of goes on around the fire and they think, so far from home, what could be the odds of that? Now, you must know this Galilean that's on trial. You must know Jesus. And Peter's kind of, no, no, look, hey, I don't know him. I don't know what your guy's problem is. A third time the crowd goes, this, listen, you must know this Jesus that's on trial. Peter vehemently denies Jesus again. I don't know who he is. I'm not one of his followers. I'm not his disciple. And in the background, as those words leave his lips, he's a rooster crow, right? And he remembers those words of Jesus where he said, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows. Peter's offended by this accusation, of course, and defends himself. And now here he finds himself, just a short time later, doing just the thing he swore he would never do. So I wonder, and I put myself in Peter's shoes, and you hear the news of the resurrection, and it's wonderful, and it's glorious, and it's all these things. But I suspect it's also deeply confronting of his failures. If you've been looking, if you've been reading uh, the single thing or, or looking at it, and I'm not assuming you all have, uh, you'll know that um, this week's been about character. About trying to build a generous, godly kind of character. And we can see uh, the list of the kind of character traits that God would try and build in us. What it, would, what it would look like if we were following after Jesus. We see the traits of gratitude, of recognising God's generosity. We see traits of, of presence, of actually of being, of being in the world and not so distracted by those voices and those things that call for our attention apart from Jesus. We'd see compassion. We'd see the willingness to look beyond ourselves and to have a heart of generosity. We'd see trying to build this sense of godly wisdom that means our generosity is effective. We'd see humility, where we can give ourselves generously because we realise we're not our own to give. These kind of character traits that we'll be looking at and unpacking and that you've kind of looked at and unpacked already in the book, these are, these are hard to manifest, aren't they? In a good week when I'm probably in my, uh, when I'm in a good frame of mind, in a good month, in a good season, I think I can feel like I'm doing okay at two, maybe three. <laughs> I don't know about you. But it seems to me that if we're, when we're looking at character, 
when we're not just thinking about knowledge or about skills or about behaviour, when we're looking at character, it seems to me the best way to shape our character, what I rely on and what I think we all, if we're honest, rely on, is an encounter with Jesus. A following after, a following in the footsteps of Jesus. So we don't have all our, all our great role models around us. Don't manifest these things as well as we do in Christ. So what we, as we look at these words today, I guess I, I want to unpack what's it look like for you to have that encounter with Jesus. Because I believe that, like Peter, a lot of us, with our best intentions, will still fall short. We'll still if not with our mouths, with our lives, with our actions, with our relationships, with our behaviours, we'll deny Jesus in one way or another. We'll fall short of that benchmark of generosity that we'd all love to aspire to. But in our brokenness, in our fallenness, and in our still waiting, in our still in our being in that world that's now but not yet, still seeing dimly through that veil, we still won't live up to the fullness of these things. The best chance we have is by, like Peter, encountering Jesus again. In this encounter with Jesus, I want you to notice something. There are these few kind of words at the beginning which are easy to skip over as narrative detail in John 21. When they had finished eating. We sort of get some more context in the lead up to these um, to these words as well when we read that when the, they, that's the disciples, landed they saw there a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. What we see here, ladies and gentlemen, is the resurrected king of the universe making breakfast for his disciples. Does that blow your mind a little bit? You, you think, you see, you see, sometimes I've got three kids, three girls, nine, five and three, and they're, they're beautiful, great, wonderful kids, and you know, I, I, I die for them, and I love them, and I kind of do all these things to kind of sacrifice for them. But how many times have they said to me, Daddy, can you build Lego? Daddy, can you come and push me on the swing? Daddy, can you do this? Daddy, can you do that? Daddy, sit and have breakfast with us. And I say, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Me in my own little world, with my own little circle of influence, my own little mandate and mission and and things to do in, in my own little John Lewis land, is too busy to play with those kids that he loves. I suspect most parents or have been parents, or would like to be parents, know what we're talking about here. And yet Jesus. Jesus, in, this is the, in John 1, at the beginning of John. We read, in the beginning he was with God and he was God. All through things, all things were created. As we go on to kind of uh, read the picture of, of, of the majesty of the returning Jesus who will come and every knee will bow before him. 
this almighty, all-powerful God who always was and always will be. We meet him at this amazing cross-section between where his earthly ministry is kind of wrapping up. He's about to ascend and the Holy Spirit's going to come. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's changing gears from Jesus being the, the instigator and the leader of the mission of this gospel. And it's going to kick over to the church, to Peter and the other disciples, all the way through to us. We kind of meet this story in this like snapshot of time, right? It's this amazing in the grand scheme and, and sweep of the history of the universe. It's this unique few days, this flicker of time between when Jesus is resurrected and teaching his disciples in physical form and when it's over to them to take the mission on. In this briefest, flickerest, most significant time, Jesus stops. He builds a fire. He gathers firewood. He cooks bread. He cooks fish. And he gives it to his disciples. Amazing, isn't it? Me who's too busy to stop and play with my kids. The God of the universe makes breakfast for his friends. I believe in this. We see a deep relationship between Jesus and those disciples, don't we? When we read these words, and any time you think about mission, whether it's from Pam about global interaction, whether it's from uh, anyone you hear from Baptist World Aid or any organisation, any call, not just a global mission, but to that sacrificial mission-shaped living in your life, any time you hear that call and that tug and it feels expensive and it feels costly and it feels like it's going to kind of be an inconvenience at the very least, any time you hear those big calls... Please make sure you remember to hear them with the smell of breakfast in your nose. When Jesus comes and he calls Peter here, when he calls us, when he talks to us about what our mission will be and what our mission is, he does it over the context of breakfast. Relationship matters deeply to Jesus. I hear some scary trends and some some scary thoughts in the church in the West where churches will say they're, they're, we're a church that's more focused on discipleship than mission or more focused on mission than discipleship. And people say to me, well, where do you land? Where do you sit in this spectrum? I say, well, for me, discipleship and mission is kind of like inhaling and exhaling. I can't really choose a favourite. See, one without the other doesn't exist, Right? If you're serious about your discipleship, if you're serious about studying the word of God and following the word of God and following in the footsteps of Jesus, those footsteps have to lead to mission. They just have to or we've missed something. Whether that's mission locally, whether that's a mission to your neighbours, whether that's uh, empowering mission overseas with people you'll never meet. You have to cut so much out of the Gospels for it to lead anywhere else. It's the same for me with mission. I'm an activist, right? Not in the social, political sense, but in terms of I like being active, which is why my kids sometimes struggle for my attention, I think. And it's easy for me to get kind of caught up in um, the the great things that, that we're doing or the great things that we can do or attempt. 
But when I do those things and when I kind of get so caught up in the activity that I forget to connect with Jesus and be regularly connecting with Jesus, you know what I find? My activity kind of falls flat, right? My mission, if it's not empowered by connection with Jesus and from a a deep place of following after Jesus, will never live to the fullness of what it could if it was an extension of my relationship with him. And I believe that is here when we read Peter kind of uh, being launched into mission and the disciples, including us, launched into mission. I believe that's why Jesus anchors it in the context of breakfast because he wants it to be in the context of relationship and connection. As the story moves on, we see some more words of connection and relationship. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? That's bad. I need, sorry, my eyesight is not what it used to be. (laughs) I'm glad I stole this Bible. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will lead you and dress you. We need to notice a few things about this passage. You see, when, uh, when Simon Peter makes that confession, when he says, you know, Lord, you are the Messiah, when he has that aha moment where he kind of gets it above all the other disciples, Jesus changes his name. He says, you're Peter, which means rock, and the significance of, of rock is that it's what the church will be built on. As we kind of fast forward to this and we find Peter in a vulnerable place, I find it interesting to notice that Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. He gives him a chance, though, doesn't he? He gives him three chances, in fact. And I suspect on the, the, the first one, Peter's his usual blustery self. I'm back in the moment. Back ready to follow you again. The second one, the second time he's asked, I imagine he's confused. Did we not clarify that? What, you know, did I stutter? In the third time, he gets it. The third time he has a chance to say, oh, yes, Lord, I, I love you. Now, when I first read this story, when I first heard this story, it seemed to me like a, uh, a pretty harsh on Jesus's front, right? I mean, you could understand Peter's reaction. It was a pretty scary time. Big things were happening, and I thought, man, he's really—you know—he's letting Peter have it here. And I'm not arguing from science that this is exactly what Jesus had in mind, but it seems to me that it's not a coincidence that he asked him three times. And I think it wasn't about just reminding Peter of his sin. I think it was about giving Peter a gift. It's a precious gift. It's a gift of titled The Art of the Do-Over. How about those, those times in life where you've just completely blown it? You know, I, I had a conversation last night with someone and I made this joke that just fell so flat. Like... And not just like, I don't get it, like, I think what you said, what I just said to someone, they heard as deeply offensive. (laughs) 
and I'm and I'm and I'm sitting in I'm laying in bed last night. I'm staring up at the ceiling. and I'm going, how do I redo that? You know, this is someone I don't see very often. I'm going to have to ring them up and go, can we catch up for a coffee, just so I can clarify what I was actually trying to say, and the point I was actually trying to make, as opposed to the point you clearly heard and now think less of me for. You know, it's it's one of those things. You go, if I could just go back in time and change it. You know, I'm fortunate that I kind of, I will do that and I can do that. But I think we could all relate to that feeling, right? That feeling of going, oh no, that's not at all what I intended to do. It's not at all what I intended to say. And I think here that what Jesus is giving Peter is a second chance, a do-over. Now we all might need do-overs in our lives with our words sometimes, but I, but I suspect that we all probably regularly need a chance for a do-over. Plenty of times when the lives that we lead and the decisions that we make don't reflect those Lord I love you's that we sing about in church or that we say in, in Bible studies or in our own devotional times. I suspect there are times for all of us when like Peter we recognise that we have said Lord I love you only to turn around and live as if we'd never met the man. It's encouraging to be in that time and in that space to know that Jesus will give us a do-over, another chance, a chance to, to, to do that I love you action, to choose that course which actually says I will follow you, Jesus. The generosity of Jesus in that moment is profound. He had every right to confront and rebuke Peter. And there's an element of that. But it's an element of that to bring fullness and restoration of relationship. And for us too, for all those times where we well-intentioned said we were going to do something and then don't. I think it's Jesus would meet with us again give us that chance but that's not where it stops see on making this confession Jesus kind of outlines what the response will be when he says feed my sheep every time that Peter says I love you Jesus says great well that means feed my sheep feed my lambs Jesus didn't just want Peter to kind of not feel guilty anymore and to kind of uh, move on feeling more kind of existentially whole and clean and resolved. He pointed out to him that, you know, an I love you also has an action behind it, right? And this is the action that he points him to. He says, Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Now, if you're a, a follower of church history, you'd know that this literally happened to Peter. Uh, his hands were literally stretched out. He was led to a place he didn't want to go, which was crucifixion, for the sake of following Jesus. So it's kind of flowery language, and, and, and for us, we may not ever have to die like that. I suspect we probably won't. 
But that following, that hand stretched out into a cross-shaped life is a calling that's made to all of us. The generosity of God elicits a response. We're kind of, if you're following the series, we're kind of on this, uh, this hinge point in, in week three where the, the generosity and the graciousness of God that we can love and know and accept has to have some kind of a response, doesn't it? It'd be like if you were like winning the lottery and not changing your life. I read an article of, of a man who did just that. He was uh, uh, a fisherman. He'd, he'd retired. He was living up the north coast. And he won $3 million in the lottery. And they interviewed him anonymously as they do in Australia. And they said, oh, wow, $3 million. Wow, what are you going to do? And he's like, oh, might buy a new boat. Um, I don't know, I guess I'll probably, I've got this, this like 98 cru- land cruiser I've had my eye on. I'll probably pick that up. And the, the, the tone of the story was, this guy's the great Australian hero, right? This guy's the new Daryl Kerrigan. Isn't that amazing? But I was reading this article going, no! No! Why bother buying a lottery ticket if you're not going to change if you win? Save up and buy the boat with the ridiculous amount you probably spend each week, right? But it seems to me that as the church we can do just that. We've won the lottery, folks. We've got the generosity of God. We know the generosity of God. We can experience the fullness of life with him and if it doesn't make a difference in our lives, then we're just wasting it, right? Then we're just wasting it. And this is what we hear. When Jesus says, yes, you love me, but it has to look like something. And this is what he wants it to look like. He wants it to look like feeding his sheep. In the context of what we're talking about, it's that, it's that generosity that kind of overflows from God through us to others. We see throughout Jesus' life the story, stories of healing. Blind Bartimaeus, stories of the man by the well. These acts of extravagant generosity of healing and restoration and fullness. That's what our lives are to look like. In Luke 4, 18 to 19, Jesus explains what feeding his sheep is going to look like. For him, as the great shepherd, this is what he's going to do. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. You know, the word feed my sheep here, there's kind of two words that they use in Koine Greek for feed. One means to give food to. And in the story of the, the prodigal son, when the son's uh, off in his, uh, having his prodigal moment and he's tending pigs, right? And they say he, he, f- he was feeding the pigs. That's one word. That's just kind of throwing food to animals. The, the word that's used here is a much richer, deeper meaning. It means nourish, care for, tend for. Look after my sheep. This is what a shepherd does. A shepherd doesn't just kind of push bales of hay out of the back of a ute like we kind of do now. In the ear and the message that Jesus is getting across is of this relationship, this connection, this knowing, this feeding and nourishing sheep. And that's much more costly. 
doesn't sit very comfortably in a lot of today's society where we want to deal with inconvenience and, and ease and instant kind of access to stuff. It's a very countercultural message. Uh, Gustavo Gutierrez was a, uh, a Peruvian um, theologian who uh, he, he operated in, in the slums of Peru and uh, through one of those things that it seems to happen, he got plucked from obscurity and uh, kind of uh, made his way onto kind of the, the, the global speaking kind of circuit. And uh, he was in uh, America speaking in front of a, a Baptist convention, a large Baptist convention, and they asked him, you know, like, oh, we, we really care about the, the poor in this, in this movement. You know, um, what, else, what, can, what else can we do? What else should we do? And we see he came back with these words. He said, you say you care about the poor. And he goes on to say that is a good thing. Then tell me, what are their names? You say you care about the poor. We can add in there if you say you care about the lost, you care about the broken, you care about your community. Then tell me, what are their names? See, when we follow Jesus, when we see these pictures of Jesus, we realize we follow a God, a Lord who knows every hair on every head. I mean, when we talk about child sponsorship, the, re- the way we set it up, the way that we do, and like I said, we've moved to this community development model. But we want everyone to get that it's not a cause we're talking about. We're not talking about poverty. We're not talking about injustice. We're talking about people. We're talking about people precious in God's sight talking about people created in his image we're talking about people that jesus would sit and cook breakfast for if they were at the beach side that day people like us i'm not saying that you need to know the names of every person in every village that you may support or know about but i do think it's important to keep in focus that the generosity we know from god is a generosity that is expressed not to causes, but to, to, to people, to children, to villagers, to our friends, to our neighbours, you can put in there as well. So when we put a, our, our idea for the, the thing we're trying to get across is be part of an incredible story. God is already at work in the lives of our neighbours. God is already at work in the lives of our friends, of our family. God is already at work in the lives of, of Anne and, and children like her. And God calls us to be a part of that story. He calls us to be a part of feeding his sheep. I started with a story of um, that heart-pumping kind of moment where I was waiting to pull the curtain back. My senior pastor and employer, more relevantly at the time, standing there. Behind the, the curtain I knew was a whole lot of mess, <laughs> a whole lot of, 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 of damage that I'd kind of done and uh, albeit unintentionally. I'd fallen short of my mandate to look after kids by nearly setting the building in on fire, right? So I had the heart pounding kind of moment. I pulled the curtain back and, and Paul looks in and he goes, oh, what happened here? And I kind of uh, explained the story and I kind of all blurred out how I left out the bit about thinking I was going on a book tour. 
uh, but I just kind of uh, blurted out the story of what I was trying to achieve and, and what I was setting out to do, but what ended up happening and how I responded and all these kind of things. And he, he looked at me and he said with a smile, well, I can see your heart was in the right place. <laughs> but these are the things you probably need to reconsider, right? You need to think about how you do this, this and this. And um, in... Um, as you, if you're looking at the single thing as you go forward this week, you'll get a whole bunch of practical stuff about how we do this well. Um, spoiler alert. Um, but uh, oh, I did that the wrong way around, didn't I? Um, but yeah, so how you kind of practically do uh, some of this stuff better. And that's an important part of it. But I think it's also important to know that we don't do these things out of condemnation. Paul didn't sack me. He taught me how I could kind of do it better, do it more safely and effectively. But... Uh, I think that's how Jesus would respond as well. This week, I think if you're reading the books, you'll, you'll probably learn some stuff about how we can... You, maybe you'll read it and you'll go a bit like, oh, okay, I haven't done that in the past. I haven't been a part of that. Oh, I've made that mistake. That's okay. God sees that. He knows that. He's the God of the do-over. Let's pray to him now, hey? Father God, I thank you that you uh, love us. Lord, that in the midst of all those times when we set out to do something and we get distracted from doing that good thing that you called us to. Lord, from those times when we swear we're going to love you and follow after you, but we kind of get taken off course or off direction. Lord, I thank you in all those times that your grace covers those things. But Lord, I also thank you that your voice calls us back. It calls us back to follow after you, to follow in your footsteps, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. God, I pray a, a blessing on, on Aaron of Baptist Church here, God. I pray that you would uh, bless the heart for mission and justice that they have shown. I pray that you would bless their heart for, their, for the local community. I pray, pray that you would bless their heart for those overseas. And I pray you would speak to us all, Lord, as individuals, about how we can follow you in feeding your sheep in the world you've got us in. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love and your generosity in each of these things. And we pray that we might express that in our own lives. Amen.